Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. In this episode, we have me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then we're joined by the incredible author, Nick Stone, to talk about her work teaching young audiences about the past and the future and about her upcoming books. Now, the message this week is a tweet that I saw and posted about Thanksgiving. It's a tweet from Prison Culture, which she wrote I love mostly for the ending. So she wrote, a lot of what people project onto you doesn't, in fact, belong to you. You learn this with experience. You have to let go of what doesn't, in fact, belong to you. The trick is that you don't know what that is until you get more comfortable in your own skin, until you know yourself. I love how simply she says the trick is that you don't know what that is until you get more comfortable in your own skin until you know yourself. I think that's so true. I think that there are a lot of people who aren't yet comfortable in their own skin who don't know themselves. I think I'm still trying to figure that out some days. So people will project things onto me and because I might be a little shaky in who I think I am in the moment, I might take more than I should or take the wrong thing. So that was my lesson this week. It's like, remember that the better you know yourself, the better you're able to navigate the things that people around you want to put on you. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett Cunningham at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Dre at D-R-A-Y on Twitter. This past week uh, for the Thanksgiving holidays, I was back home in New Orleans And I had the opportunity to visit a local plantation with about 15 or 16 members of my family. And I had been to this place before, and it was an incredibly powerful experience, a place that centered the lives of enslaved people rather than talking about the architecture, the windows, or the enslavers who lived in the house, but instead centered the experience of those who were enslaved on the plantation. And I'd been to this place before, like I said, but I had never been there with my family. And I think going there, especially with My grandmother, someone whose grandfather, the person who raised her, was a person who was born into slavery. It made it a much more rich experience in ways that I hadn't experienced before. And part of what I was thinking about after we left was the way that so many people misunderstand what the central sites of enslavement were throughout early America. And specifically this idea that slavery was something that just happened in the South when actually it was different cities in the North in many ways that served as the foundation for what slavery would eventually become over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries. After we got home from the plantation, I came across a timely essay written by Brent Staples of the New York Times that talked about that very thing. Uh, In the piece, he talks about how New Yorkers who grew up with this fiction that slavery was limited to just the South uh, were confronted with a very different reality, especially in 1991, when construction in Lower Manhattan unearthed hundreds of skeletons from a forgotten colonial era cemetery that had served as the resting place for about 15,000 Africans who were brought here on slave ships. Uh, The burial site, known since 2006 as the African Burial Ground National Monument, underscored the fact that New York City in the late 18th century was the epicenter of the slave trade holding more Africans than any other city in the country. In 1703, for example, 42% of New York's households had enslaved people, much more than Philadelphia and Boston combined. Among colonial cities, basically it was only Charleston, South Carolina, that had more. New York City's addiction, Brent writes, to the immediate fruits of slave labor and to the profits it reaped from servicing the business needs of the South made for a slow and tortured path to emancipation there because they were benefiting so much from the economic output that was coming from the South. In 1799, New York State ratified gradual emancipation for enslaved offspring born 
after July 4th of that year, but held them in indentured servitude until they were young adults. In 1817, the state passed yet another law that freed enslaved people before 1799, with emancipation taking effect in 1827, making New York one of the last northern states to abolish slavery in the Union. By this time, Brent writes, White New York had taken steps to cripple African-Americans politically and economically. Black men had largely been banished from lucrative skill trades and relegated to subsistence jobs. Uh, And to short-circuit Black political empowerment, the state legislature made voting rights for Black men contingent on ownerships of property valued at $250 or more, even as it rolled back the property ownership requirements for white men. As a result, only, and this is a wild stat, only 16 Black men in Manhattan had the right to vote. 16. Beyond that, New Yorkers relentlessly attacked African-American institutions, torching churches, blocking efforts to build black schools. Racial terrorism worsened after the legislature made it known in 1817 that all African-Americans would soon be legally free. And all of this was amplified by the fact that slave catchers who roamed the streets in the North and the South were seeking to kidnap both free black people and fugitive slaves, which was an existential threat and hazard to the folks, both free and formerly enslaved, who live there. So I just wanted to bring this to us as we continue to think about uh, slavery and its intergenerational impact on this country on this, the 400th year anniversary of the first enslaved Africans being brought to the British colonies in Virginia. So I hope that was helpful, and I hope that this is something that helps disabuse folks of the idea that slavery is something that was only happening in the South and something that only benefited the South, because that is far far from the truth. So last week, we talked about the fact that in October 2019, for the first time since the 1980s, there were zero refugees that had been resettled in the United States. And unfortunately, the Trump administration's effort to try to change the face of a nation of immigrants continues. This week, a court continued to block Trump's efforts to diminish the number of documented immigrants that come through the country. But this is a proclamation that he has already written and that still has the opportunity to become law. The fact of the matter is, Trump was never just going after undocumented immigrants. He was going after immigrants, period, especially those from the places that he calls S-hole countries. So here's what happened. The proclamation, if it goes into effect, might so severely limit documented immigration that it could actually turn away up to 375,000 immigrants from coming through the visa process. He's going after this in three particular ways. One is the diversity visa lottery. The second is adding a requirement that if you get a visa and intend to stay here permanently, that you have to demonstrate an ability and a plan to obtain health insurance in 30 days. And the third is to go after chain migration. Like I said, the judge has essentially blocked it by saying that he has overstepped the bounds of the Immigration and Nationality Act, and that because that was a legislative act, that this oversteps the bounds of executive power. But it is a proclamation that can still go into effect. Here's what we need to know about the three programs that he's attacking. The first, like I said, is the diversity visa lottery. So far, already for 2020, 84,000 people have qualified to be a part of next year's diversity visa lottery. 38% of them are from African countries. 37% are from European countries. 19% are from Asian countries. The rest are from Latin America and Oceania. And so what we see is that the programs that help bring in folks from the places that Trump likes 
the least are some of the ones that are in jeopardy. The second we need to pay attention to, like I said, is healthcare. Now, listen, this president has not only not created a plan to get everybody the healthcare that they need, but he's tried to diminish the folks who need access to Obamacare off those roles. And so we see that clearly the use of health insurance has nothing to do with actually getting folks the help that they need or trying to create a plan for people to be less of a burden on the government. Because if that were the case, he'd be making a plan to figure out how to insure everybody. Clearly, this is just a loophole and a doorway by which he can go after documented immigration. The third one is chain migration. That is when the parents of a naturalized citizen or a green card holder apply for citizenship and receive it almost instantaneously because their child is already here. And of course, famously, just last year, Melania Trump's parents, the president's in-laws, became citizens of the United States through the process of chain migration. So clearly, there is deep hypocrisy at work. But at the end of the day, he is trying to change the face of this country. His campaign promise to the folks that were in a frenzy over his candidacy was to do exactly that and to go after immigrants because he continued to draw them up as threats. And we see that that continues, again, not just going after undocumented immigrants, but going after the entire system. You know, it's interesting. So the Trump administration has said that it has a zero tolerance immigration policy, and that is because they want to make sure that people who are not legal citizens right now, that they don't pose a threat to public safety. But a new report that just came out from the Transactional Records Access Clearinghouse actually showed that the number of detainees with criminal records has flipped, as they note, since 2015, with just 36% of detainees having at least one violation on their record. And a violation could be a host of things compared to 61% four years ago. So like, despite the increase in arrests that's happening by ICE, there's actually a decrease in the percentage of people who have any violation on their record. But there's something that I didn't know that I wanted to bring up is that there is a case that the Supreme Court has decided to take up, and it is about a little-used provision of immigration law that forbids, quote, the encouraging or inducing an alien to reside in the United States. So there's a case where it's U.S. versus Sinning Smith, a consultant, told her undocumented clients to stay in the United States even though she knew the program that she was telling them to participate in had ended. So she was convicted of fraud. The government also convicted her on the encouragement provision. But the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the conviction on the encouragement clause. So they upheld the fraud convictions, but reversed the encouragement convictions. And they found that the government's interpretation of the statute criminalizes a large amount of protected speech. But what's happening is that the Supreme Court has decided to take this up. And it is causing a lot of stress in the immigration advocacy community because the way the law is written is just so permissive. So it would be illegal to, quote, encourage or induce an alien to reside in the United States. So this could actually criminalize the act of advocacy in the first place. And you think about this administration is that they would totally go against and file charges against any advocate that they could to criminalize the idea that you encourage people to become citizens legally. And I thought that was really interesting because what we've seen is the way that the system is configured, that the rules really matter. And knowing the rules is a key part of being able to be an effective advocate in the moment, but also knowing the rules helps you push back and challenge in ways that you otherwise wouldn't. And it helps you prepare for what the attacks are going to be from an administration that is hell-bent on doing whatever it can to disrupt. 
So we've seen mass protests just this past couple months in Chile, in Hong Kong, in Tunisia, in places around the world. But one place in particular has had protests that I didn't know about, and that is Iraq. In Iraq, since October, there have been mass protests that have been pushing against the government's corruption, against what many people there believe to be a government that is dominated by people who are sympathetic to and have close relationships with Iran, who are not adopting policies that can help out with economic inequality and poverty, uh, and instead are essentially monopolizing all of the wealth to enrich themselves, sound familiar. But those protests have actually reached a sort of critical mass in Iraq just this past couple of weeks and have forced the prime minister, Abel Abdul Mahdi, to announce that he's resigning. So I wanted to talk about this because you know, we've talked about much of the protests that have happened, not just this past year, but have happened really this decade in the U.S. and abroad. And one of the things that I didn't know about what was happening in Iraq is just the scale of the violence against protesters by Iraqi police. Um, so just since October, Iraqi police have killed an estimated 408 protesters, which is just like a wild number of people killed. They're using live ammunition and tear gas and other weapons against protesters uh, almost every single day. But it is good to see that at least the prime minister has announced that he's resigning in response to the protesters' demands. And you know, it's something that we just need to pay attention to because this is indeed like a microcosm of what's happening all around the world. And a through line through so many of these different protest movements is the corruption of the government and rampant inequality and poverty that continues to get worse. Uh, and that's something that definitely is happening here as well. You know, I won't claim to understand all of the ins and outs of every single protest movement that has been happening across the world, like you said, Sam. But what I do know is that this kind of outrage, this kind of protest, this kind of deep-seated frustration is the result of enough being enough. And the fact that we see this in country after country after country, including in our own territories like Puerto Rico, represents the fact that there is a cry across the world to end injustice and to hold accountable the ruling classes that have not only created injustice and perpetuated injustice, but directly benefit from injustice. The fact of the matter is we talk about patriotism, especially in this country, in a particular way. We talk about it and we ascribe that notion to people who go through recognized traditional government-supported systems in order to express pride in their country and support for its people. Well, the truth of the matter is that 408 people were killed because of what they believe in. And they certainly shouldn't have been. So at the end of the day, I think we need to recognize that there are folks who stand up for what's right. And there are folks who stand up for our futures outside of traditional boundaries and traditional systems that deserve our respect, that deserve our honor, and that deserve a listening ear from the folks that they are holding accountable. So my news is this incredible study that was recently done by ProPublica. It's about South Carolina. The headline is, these judges can have less training than barbers, but still decide thousands of cases each year. So in South Carolina, there is a magistrate system. Uh, there are a set of people who have the power of judges, but they aren't required to have law degrees. They aren't required to have much training at all, any training in some cases. They have been construction workers, insurance agents, pharmacists, 
One was an underwear distributor. They've been a host of things and they undergo a few hours of mandated training and then they're good to go. And they decide some 800,000 criminal and civil cases each year. And what is really scary about it is that in a host of cases, the state senator can literally just appoint somebody. So there have been cases where they've been bribed, quid pro quo sort of favors. There have been a host of things. Uh, Nearly three quarters of the state's magistrates lack a legal degree and couldn't represent somebody in the court of law. The study notes that a loophole allows them to last long after their term is expired. And in 12 of the state's 46 counties, a magistrate judge is actually decided by a single senator who can stock the courts with handpicked candidates. And it was really shocking to me. It made me think about in Maryland, there's a set of people who decide the bail amount and it's not a judge. And I remember just a couple years ago that all they had to have was a high school diploma and that these are people who were deciding the fate of so many people who got arrested immediately. They were deciding who got out and who didn't. And it was a huge deal to require like a college degree. And it's like, well, I think we should actually just demand more of the system in general and not allow these things to happen, especially because there's no accountability for these roles. So at least with judges, there's a way to remove them. People have like a language and they understand But with magistrates, a lot of people don't even know that they're there. There's not a real discipline system in the first place. And then what you find is like, even for the report that ProPublica did, is that the state Supreme Court justice, he wouldn't go on the record about this. The governor wouldn't go on the record about this. And the way that they have defended this magistrate system is saying that this is the only way to allow the system to move quickly, that you get a speedy trial, that it works. But it's a speedy trial because you have people who have no foundation in law, who have no background in any of these issues deciding the cases. So the high court's disciplinary office has reprimanded, suspended, or removed nearly three dozen magistrates since 2005. But again, 800,000 cases is really intense. You know, it's like a really wild sort of thing. So I wanted to bring this here because I think this is something that a lot of people didn't know about. And I certainly had no clue about. Yeah, I mean, this is something I didn't know about either. And, you know, this article is about South Carolina, but when reading this article, it's clear that this problem is much more widespread. Um, So there are only 28 states that require judges to have a law degree who are presiding over misdemeanor cases. Now, misdemeanor cases are about 80% of all arrests. So we're talking about the vast majority of cases. And yet the people who are sort of the magistrates or judges in these cases are just woefully underqualified to handle and decide these cases that have huge consequences for the people who these decisions are imposed on. So just looking at the training requirements for magistrates in South Carolina, for example, they don't go through as much training as a barber in the state. Their training requirements are 57 and a half hours of a hands-on training course, and then a prerequisite that they pass a competency exam that requires a sixth grade reading level and knowledge of basic mathematics, how to tell time, and the days of the week. So literally, they're going through a 12-minute multiple choice test, which has questions including what is the smallest number? And what is the earliest date? And these are the requirements to become somebody who can make decisions that have a huge impact on people's lives. And as we read in this article, this power is being used in incredibly corrupt ways. You have people who are deciding cases that are the partners of the sheriff uh, or local police department, people who are deciding cases that have records of misconduct that are not disclosed when they get reappointed by the state senators and the governor. Obviously, the system needs to be fundamentally changed 
change, not only in South Carolina, but in every state that doesn't have a requirement that judges get a law degree. But it's also an example of the power of reporting and investigations to uncover what's going on and to lead to change. So because of this reporting from ProPublica, now the misconduct histories of these judges will be required to be revealed prior to them getting reappointed. So this is a step in the right direction, but still a lot more work needs to get done to make sure that the requirements to become a judge are much stricter, not only in South Carolina, but across the country. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. 
Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. And here's my interview with author Nick Stone. Her breakthrough, Dear Martin, in 2017 was incredible and has led to a host of new books that she's writing. And I'm excited to talk to her. Here we go. Nick Stone, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. I'm thrilled. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, the first time we met in person was because you did my book talk in Atlanta. And I was like, Nick Stone. It was so fun, too. The reason that a lot of people know you is because of Dear Martin. I think you've written two more books since Dear Martin, since I met you. Right. I've had two more published since then. And um, we're moving into 2020's a three-book year. So we'll see if I'm alive by the end of it. Whoa. Okay, so before we talk about what it's like to be an award-winning author, I'd love to know, and we are, for listeners, we are literally the same age a day apart. She's July 10th. I'm July 9th, is that I've always wondered what it's like to write young adult texts being a parent of sort of youngish adults. When I started writing young adult fiction, I tripped into it basically because, I don't know, it's like I was just starting to understand my own adolescence. I started at 28, and it's like late 20s, suddenly all of these things are crystallizing that I didn't get when I was younger. Like, it's like you have all of this stuff going on as an adolescent that you don't get when you're still an adolescent. And then as I pushed toward 30, it was like, oh, so that's what that was. So when I sat down and started writing, that's what came out. The young stuff is what came out. I love it. One of the things that you've written that is not a book that I really loved was the essay, How I Taught My Son About Racism. Um, And I think that there are a lot of listeners of the podcast who, you know, we're in this moment where so many people are talking about race. The world sort of seems like it's falling apart. And they are trying to figure out how do they have these conversations about race, which is partly what the book, especially Dear Martin, sort of helps people sort of navigate through. But I'm always interested in, like, how have you tiptoed as a parent or not even tiptoed, walked into these conversations about race with your children? For me, it's important to just kind of utilize the opportunities that present themselves. Um, The first time I had a conversation with my son about race was MLK Day when he was four years old. We went to the King Center, which is one of the great things about being in Atlanta and being where I live. I'm like 
12 minutes from the King Center and the King House. So I take him there, and they always park a bus, an old bus, in front of the King House. So we get on the bus, and he tries to sit down in the front, and I told him that he couldn't. And I made him walk to the back to where the sign is, and he had to sit behind it. And there's a picture in that article because it was printed in Parents Magazine, and you see this kid kind of looking pensively off into the distance. And it's because I told him when this bus was in operation, people who looked like you and me, we had to sit back here. And I saw him process this, and it was a thing that I could tell that he... He could tell that there was something strange about that. So anytime we got an opportunity to talk about race, even then, because he was like the brown kid, my husband is Jewish. So we put both kids in Jewish preschool. So like he was like the brown kid at the preschool. So we would talk about that and we would talk about things that would happen on the news. And we would talk about granddad. My father was a police officer when I was growing up. So talking about these different things at every possible opportunity has been really helpful and just kind of pointing out the different ways. If we see somebody being treated a little differently, we talk about it. If he sees something happen in class or he sees something in a bookstore or he sees something that makes him ask questions, we talk about it. But I think for me as a parent, the most important thing to me is both preparing my sons for the world that they're going to step into while also letting them know that, like, this is the world you're going to step into, but that doesn't mean you have to be afraid. You don't have to be bound or stopped by any of these things going on. Like, you get to choose who you're going to be, even though there absolutely will be people who decide that you're not as great as you are. You know, the other thing that I'm really interested in before we sort of dive into the books is what is it like to be an artist in a moment where everybody's talking about race? So I think about... I think about before 2014, before the protests, and I think about sort of after and what shifted in sort of the mainstream space about race and justice and identity and those sort of things. And I'm always interested in what is it like to create art in a moment like this? For me, it's been fantastic. Honestly, it's made things easier. The art that I want to make is art that addresses these things. And now that everybody's talking about them, it's not so othering, honestly. So like I can write a book about race for middle schoolers. I have a book about race for middle schoolers called Clean Getaway, and it comes out January 7th. But in that book, you have this little, this 12-year-old black boy who goes on this impromptu road trip with his white grandmother across the American South. And as they go, he learns that it's a trip she tried to take in the 60s with her African-American husband. And like he's seeing how the world was then how it parallels to how it is now. And he's also learning some stuff about his white grandmother. And I think that, like, because of things happening in the media, like, I'm watching Watchmen on HBO. It is amazing the way that it addresses race. There are so many different shows and films and books right now that are talking about these issues, which just makes it easier. I feel a lot less pressure or fear about creating the stuff I want to create. You know, you spend a lot of time with young adults because a lot of your books are young adult. And, uh, you know, I did a talk recently in a sixth grade class. I used to teach sixth grade math, so not a whole lot of discussions about text. But I was in a sixth grade classroom probably six months ago to talk about a different young adult book about sort of race and justice. And I was reminded of how, as organizers, we say that young people often have the experiences before they have the language. And I could see young people like they couldn't call it white supremacy, but they got it, you know? I'd love to know, like, how have those experiences been? Like, what have you learned 
not only in writing the book, but like in actually being in communities of young people, do you see that the struggle is getting easier for them? Do you see, I don't know, like what do you see in those moments? So it's interesting. They're vastly different responses. I see white kids get really uncomfortable. And then I see black kids kind of exhale. And my favorite messages to get are the ones from kids who are like, I never knew how to talk about this thing, but this book has made me realize that my experiences are real. I was that kid who in school, I was like, you know, the black kid with all the white classmates. I had all these experiences, but I don't know, there was something about them that felt weird or like not quite true. So being able to validate these experiences for these kids is like the best part of this work. So yeah, that's typically I get a lot of black and brown kids who say like, this is my experience. I'm so glad this book exists. I've read it three times. Like I get justice, like I feel him. And then I'll have some white kids who will say, thank you for this book. It's helping me to see things differently. And then you have others, of course, that push back and they say, well, this is, I remember I got, <laughs> I got an email from a seventh grader who goes to some boarding school in Ohio and her name was Maria. And I like read this long email that was basically saying that like, I'm a racist and how dare I say all white people are trash. And she went on this whole rant about the scene in Dear Martin where the kids are talking about affirmative action policies. Those can be kind of frustrating, those responses. And I've had them happen in person too, where I have the kid who I guess is trying to impress his friends and will get up and ask me why I hate cops. And then you have to go through this whole like, little boy, if you don't sit down, but also let's pick through why you're acting out, you know? So it's it's been really interesting and varied, but my favorite is definitely the kids who finally feel seen. And what about parents? Like, I spend so much time with adults who are trying to make sense of the world, and I get so many questions from adults being like, how do I talk about da-da-da? And it's texts like this that help bridge the gap for so many adults who themselves don't have the language or are nervous in their own right. Have they reached out, or do you ever hear from parents? I do, all the time. I've never gotten a negative response from a parent. And I just said that, and I should, like, knock on wood, because I'm (laughs) sure it's coming. But, like, it's interesting, right? So Dear Martin was banned in Columbia County, Georgia, about a month ago. This was, like, the first public statement against the book where the superintendent had it pulled from the schools, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, there was this, like, outcry. But the parents were the ones that I heard from on it, which was amazing. So I got all of these angry emails from parents who had heard about this board meeting where she basically said it was Dear Martin, a curious incident of a dog in the nighttime. And then there was a third book that I can, like, never remember. But parents were angry about these books being pulled. And I'm going to be in Augusta, like, this week because parents wanted me to come and talk. So it's really been fascinating, this entire process. And I think it does go back to what your previous question about creating art in a time where race is something that we're actually talking about. It's volatile, but it's not as volatile as people think. And I think people say that like, oh, this is divisive. This is not something we should be talking about in a classroom. More because they're uncomfortable than because it's really a thing that we shouldn't be talking about. I'm thankful that we are in a time where more people are getting okay with being a little bit uncomfortable for the sake of making the world better. Um, Let's talk about Dear Martin. And where did the idea come from? Why is it called Dear Martin? Listeners, we're trying not to give too much away because you still need to read the book and you need to go buy it. But how did we get to the title? 
and the idea? The idea came um, November 23rd, 2012, uh, the death of Jordan Davis. And my older son at that point was five months old. So having a new baby who's a black boy and like learning about this black boy in Jacksonville who lost his life over loud music in a convenience store parking lot, that shook me to a level that I had never been shaken. And then fast forward two years to Mike Brown and Ferguson and the responses that I was seeing from like these white public figures, basically. Like I remember Mike Huckabee saying something and Bill O'Reilly and there were all of these people getting on TV basically saying that Dr. King would be appalled was like the phrasing I kept hearing. And I was confused because it was like the last I checked, Dr. King was doing exactly this. And when the mayor of Atlanta got on TV, this was in 2014, I think he got on TV, there was a march planned here. And he basically got on TV and said, all I ask is that you don't take the freeways. Dr. King would never take a freeway. And I was like, whoa, okay, there's something amiss here, right? Now, you know, you think about like the rewriting of history and how the further you get away from a terrible thing, the smoother the edges around the thing become. And so that's where I decided the way people were using Dr. King's words is where he came in, and then the Jordan Davis incident is where the idea came from. So I basically just put those two things together. And you wind up with this 17-year-old Black kid. He's high-achieving. He's pretty much doing everything right. But there's a night he's trying to assist his ex-girlfriend, who has had too much to drink after a party, and in the process of trying to put her into her car so he can drive her home, a police officer pulls up decides he's doing something bad and arrests him on the spot without letting him speak. And in response to the incident, the young man decides to start a journal of letters that he writes to the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to see if Dr. King's teachings, like how do they hold up against the stuff that he's facing every day? Do you remember when you were like, I'm a writer? Like, when did you consider yourself like a writer writer? Mm, I don't know that I do yet. Like, I have days when I'm like, yes, I'm a writer, and then days when, like, imposter syndrome is very real. And I think that that's okay. I've been having conversations a lot with other writers lately about how the doubt never goes away. Like, I was on a panel with Jacqueline Woodson last week, and even she, like, said she sits down to start a new book and is like, I don't know how to do this. So if Jacqueline Woodson is dealing with that... I think it's okay to wrestle with the, okay, well, I'm a writer technically, but, like, what does that actually mean? So not yet, I guess, and also a couple years ago. (laughs) I love it. I like it. That was a very writerly answer. There was an interview you did a while ago, actually, that I remember because you referenced or somebody asked about The Giver, and The Giver is the book that changed my life. Like, it literally is the book that I didn't know words could do that until The Giver I'd love to know your read on The Giver. So I read The Giver in, the first time I read it, I was in seventh grade. And I reread it as an adult. And it's like, it's so wild to me, right? Like I think about the stuff we were made to read and how it's only as an adult that I've reread those things and can actually appreciate them. It's the same thing with like Fahrenheit 451. I did not get that book at all when I was in seventh grade. So reading The Giver in seventh grade, What I remember from that read was that all of a sudden things changed. And I'll just leave it at that for people who have not read The Giver. Like, I don't want to spoil The Giver. But when I read it as an adult, it was like, oh, there's so much more to this. 
and to kind of breaking down the idea of conformity. And, you know, it's interesting. It's That's a theme that flowed through a lot of the stuff that we had to read in middle school. I remember um, A Wrinkle in Time. It's the same thing. Like, you have this notion of, like, sameness. Like, everything needs to be the same for the sake of people's protection, right, is the idea. Um, and then, of course, that gets pulled apart. And I think that's just a theme that I hope continues to show up in literature as we continue forward. Especially right now, I feel it's super important. As books like How to Be an Anti-Racist come out, as we start thinking about differences and how difference doesn't necessarily mean hierarchy, like these books are ones that I hope continue to be put into, like I will be handing The Giver to my son as soon as I think he's ready to read it. I love it. That book was a miracle to me. Uh, is it true, Nick, that you really, did you really get on a plane with almost no money and go to Israel? Is that true? I sure did. What were you thinking? God help me. <laughs> I clearly was not thinking, Duray. Clearly. <laughs> and I mean, look, this is at a point in life where I was intensely evangelically Christian. I was lost. I had just dropped out of college for the second time and I needed something. And so I did. I got on this plane and I went to Israel and it worked out. Like I wound up being there for an entire summer. This lovely woman basically paid for me to live that summer. And then once I got back home, I got a job and I worked to pay her back. But it's a summer that totally changed my life. So I'm glad I made that really bad decision because, like, I went looking for, like, God and I found this really hot guy instead. And we've been married for 10 years. So it was a good call going to Israel with no money. I didn't know that's where you that's where you met your husband. That's where I met Boo. Yes. Oh, wow. What was it like to get out? I don't even, you know, I think about... The protest is my time where, like, I, I look back at those decisions I made, and I'm like, okay, that was intense. <laughs> right, right. You're like, oh, boy, what were you thinking? I'm like, did I deplete my retirement and my savings and all this stuff and total my car and stay outside? Yes. Was Israel what you thought it would be in terms of your religion? Like, did you find God in the way you thought you would? Yeah, yeah, no. It was pretty much the opposite in every way. My faith completely unraveled. Um, in a good way. Like it was, it was the kind of faith that I was holding on to at that point needed to unravel because it was not inquiry based. Like there was no inquiry at all. It was just, this is what's the truth and this is what I have to stick to. And going to a place like Israel, which boy, is it fraught. And part of the reason I came back is because there's just, it's a hard place. It's also the place that I realized I wanted to be a storyteller. And I realized that I went into Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is in the West Bank. It's on the other side of the giant concrete security wall. I'm not going to go there right now. But you have to go through a security checkpoint to get into Bethlehem. The first time I went to Bethlehem, I was on a tour bus. So you can drive through and you don't even really notice the checkpoint because you're talking to your friends. But when I went through by myself, because I wanted to go, I met this family that lived there. And I wanted to go and like stay with them and kind of get to know them a little better. So the walkthrough checkpoint, it is intense even getting into Bethlehem. So imagine trying to get out, right? So I get in there and I meet this young lady. She was a year younger than me. And her one ambition was to go to university in England. Like that's what she wanted to do. But she couldn't do it because she didn't have a passport. She didn't have a passport because she had literally had no country of nationality where she lives. She's not a citizen of Israel and she's not in an actual country. So she can't get a passport and you can't cross an international border without a passport. And it was my first time interacting with someone who basically has 
no body of government supporting them, really. I've heard the phrase stateless. So that was my first time interacting with someone who had done no wrong, who is trapped in this place that they would like to leave and can't. And that's what made me want to actually become a storyteller because hearing her story and realizing that, like, there are people all over the place whose stories nobody is hearing, but these stories need to be heard because we need to know that, like, people are people. Like, everybody should be offered, you know, a certain amount of dignity, I think. So meeting her was the catalyst for me even wanting to write fiction in the first place. And, yeah, like I said, like, my faith slowly crumbled because of, like, some of the stuff I saw and experienced there. There are people living in very, very dire straits and super awful conditions. And not I'm not just talking about, like, poverty. I saw a lot of ugly things, is what I will say. And it made me question everything I thought I knew about just about everything. And, I mean, I do feel like I came out on the other side a more compassionate person and a person who really does care about doing whatever I can to help people really see each other. The faith piece is a hot mess still. Like, I'm still like, I don't know. I have no idea what I believe now. And that's okay. I'm cool with it. Does the grappling with faith make it into the books? Sometimes. Um, I find that, like, I'll have, like, a question that will pop up in each book. In Odd One Out, there's a scene where one of the characters is talking to a friend of hers who's a lesbian. And the friend is talking about how when she came out to her mother, her mother, like, lost it and, like, went on this whole diatribe about how her baby was going to hell, et cetera, et cetera. And then the girl basically says, well, if you're going to heaven and there's no, like, pain or anything, how will you—you won't even be concerned about me and where I'm going. And it's just this whole, like— I like to kind of poke at some of the lack of logic in a lot of the things that we're taught to believe. Like, I personally think any concept, any, like, deity has to be rational because we're rational. And if we're made in the image of a deity, the deity would be, like, ultimate rationality is my thinking, right? The contradictions and stuff, they're tricky. It shows up a little bit. I haven't done anything too heavy-handed. I'm sure I will eventually, though, because I like writing about things that bother me. You talked about one of your family members was a police officer. How does that factor into the way you like wrote about the police, the way you think about the police, the way that you raise kids in a world where the violence of the police has become such a public topic in a way that it just wasn't before? Yeah. So what's fascinating, right? Like my dad was a police officer for the first 23 years of my life. But he's the person who read... Dear Martin, and was, like, helping me shape (laughs) the police officers. He's very open with me about even flaws that he sees in training protocols and the fallibility of being human. So we talked a lot while I was working on Dear Martin, and he loves the book. I mean, of course he does. He's my father. But, like, there are definitely some opportunities for him to take offense, and he never does because he felt like it was accurate. And we talked a lot about police training. My dad has shared stories with me about, you know, colleagues of his who are now in prison for poor decisions made on drug busts and things like that. So it's been fascinating kind of interacting and having lived in Israel. Now, this is interesting, right? So Don't nobody pay no attention to the police in Israel. They are not a respected entity at all. So when you leave the airport in Israel, there's this thing called a shirut. And the shirut will take you 
into Jerusalem. So the airport's in Tel Aviv, but it'll drive you to Jerusalem, and there's, like, space for, like, nine people or something on it. So our Sharut driver is just blazing. Like, he is driving way too fast, and we get pulled over. And the police officer gets onto the Sharut. He's, like, asking him for his license and registration, and the other passengers just went off and, like, ripped into this police officer. And it was like, what are you doing? Why are you stopping him? You need to go away. And, of course, they're rattling off in Hebrew, but, like, I'm sitting here blown. And he left. I had never seen anything like that. And then you contrast that to this video I saw the other day of a police officer literally breaking a man's window and pulling him out of the car because the man wanted to know why he got pulled over. Like, what is happening, you know? And I think the most striking thing about growing up with my dad is that I really did see police officers as people who were there to help me growing up. So if I saw a person in uniform, I saw somebody who looked like my dad. I I wasn't afraid of the police. I thought the police were good. And it wasn't until, like, getting pulled over at 19 for no reason at all. This is in Illinois somewhere. Me and another African-American female, a friend of mine, were driving through, like, cornfields on one side and wheat on the other. There's nothing there. It's broad daylight. And we get pulled over. We're not speeding. And he makes her get out and get into his squad car while he ran her license and registration, which it's funny because it felt weird, but I also didn't know. I was like, okay, well, maybe that's just the protocol here. You know how we like rationalize? I'm like rationalizing this very strange behavior. And then once she got back in the car and all he said to her was, you need to take that tassel off your rear view. You can't have that up there and let us go. I was like, why did he pull us over? You know, and it was it's thinking back through situations like that where, I don't know, man, I don't know how I feel. I am thankful, though, to have a father who is very self-aware and who was wildly open with me about his own experiences as a police officer, about some of the stuff that, you know, he saw other people get away with. And, you know, I agree with you on the topic of policing as a concept and how it's really effed up. And I say this as a parent. Like, I know that as a parent, if all I ever did was say, if you don't do this, I'm going to punish you, that's not a thing that actually works with human beings. Shout out to the reflective former officer parent. He's great. He really is. There's going to be a companion to Dear Martin that comes out next fall. Yes. Yes. October 6th. Dear Justice. Oh, you already have a date. Oh, yeah. October 6th. October 6th, 2020. Mark it down. So this is where Dear Martin was the book about, like, the black boy doing everything right. Dear Justice is the book. It's about Quan. So in Dear Martin, you meet a character named Quan who Justice visits in jail, waiting trial on murder charges. So he and Justice grew up in the same neighborhood. They were friends for a period of time. And then Justice kind of went one way and Quan went pretty much in the opposite direction. So this book is about him and how he got to where he is. And in the book, he's writing letters to justice from detention. Like, he's in jail, like I said, awaiting trial on murder charges, and he is writing these letters to justice as he kind of processes through his own life. And I wrote that book for a pair of my mentees who basically asked me to. They read and loved Dear Martin, but I got, like, tag team text one day, and they were basically saying, while we love this book, while we love justice, this not our life. We need you to tell our story, like, you're our voice. So I, I literally wrote it for them. It looks at the juvenile justice system, 
But it also looks at the factors that push kids into the juvenile justice system, if that makes sense. Like, what are the things going on at home? What are the economic factors? What are, you know, there's so many different things that nobody thinks about when they lock a black boy up and throw the key away. And I want people to start thinking about these things and to start treating all of our children like human beings, you know, because even though, yes, kids make really trash decisions sometimes, but that doesn't make them any less worthy of our respect or of our compassion. And I I think the compassion piece is the big piece for me. I'm hoping that this is a book that helps people to see that even the Black boy who joins an organization that maybe is involved in some illegal activity, like that doesn't make him a monster or a super predator. I'm interested in, like, what you learn in the process of writing a book like that. Um, I spend a lot of time in juvenile detention centers, interacting with the population there. And most of the kids that I meet are kids, like 16, 15, 16, 17. And they're very much still children. And yes, a lot of them have made some really not great decisions that have hurt people. I was in a detention center in the Bay Area while I was on tour And I met a youth who was being bullied incessantly. And the youth took the bully out, shot him in the head. And the bully died. And so now this young person is going to be locked away for a long time. But I don't know. It's like the the moment the person makes the extreme decision, everything that led up to the decision gets wiped away. And that's the thing that bothers me, especially when I meet these kids and I hear their stories. And they, they, I've been told so many stories. I met another kid at a center in the Bronx who he'd only been in for a couple weeks when I was there and when I met him. And something that he said, like he was telling me basically, like he was still grappling with the decision that he made that landed him where he was. And he basically sat and told me about how he was doing great until his dad left. And once his dad left, his family fell apart, so he went looking for a new family. So there are all of these pieces of these kids' lives that we never get to hear about, right? It's like once you make the bad decision, you've made an adult decision, so now you're an adult and now you have to suffer the consequences. But there's very little attention paid to that kind of I feel like there's this, like, interim stage between when bad things start happening and when the person does something reactionary and blows their life up. But there's this period where the person is still reachable. The kid is still reachable. You can still get in there. You can see them and listen to them, and it can lead them in a different direction. So that's really what I'm trying to touch on with Dear Justice. I just want people to pay more attention to the young people around them because a lot of them are going through some really hard stuff and they just need to be seen. Like they don't need you to like give them advice or pull them out. It's just they need to be validated and they need to know that their experiences are real and that the pain that they feel from those experiences is real and it's okay for them to feel that pain. I've been to juvenile detention facilities too and you're like, incarceration in general is bad. Like it's just not a, it doesn't work. But then you see these kids and you're like, y'all, this just, you're like, this can't be. The adults are like camp counselors. It's like not even, you're like, they're 14, you know? If I didn't know this was a jail, it would look like a weird camp, you know, because they are literally. Like where everybody, yeah, they're just kids. They're kids. They're playing Uno and like sitting in a corner reading a book in the places where books are allowed. And it's like. The fact that they are plucked out of, like, I I met a, so I have yet to meet a girl in detention who has not been trafficked, truly. The center I went to in the Bay Area, every single girl I met had been trafficked. Like, 
these kids are going through really ugly, nasty things out in the world. And the fact that our solution to that is to throw them away into a place that deems them delinquent? Come on. Like, we got to do better than that. There we go. We love you, Nick Stone. And uh, we consider you a family of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Heck yes. Thanks, DeRay. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.